Now to growing concerns about total cases in the U.S. now top 8.4 million. You must stay at home. The new variant of coronavirus is out of control. You can't be serious, man. I hate you, 2020! Well, that was a pile of crap, I know. However, we did see some amazing tech companies emerge from the crisis. And this podcast is me going around the world talking to founders of these companies. And some of these founder stories are absolutely amazing and can't wait to share them with you. So, from San Francisco to Sydney, my name's Ben Kenwright, introducing the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club podcast. Okay, so welcome back to the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club podcast. This week is Investor Week. And, well, we're going to be talking about investment, as I've previously said. Uh, we're trying to get more informative on the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club podcast. Today we're meeting Jonathan Dwight, who is an early stage VC uh, for a company called Scrum Ventures out in San Francisco. Jonathan is not quite a 2020 entrepreneur, but Jonathan was very active investing in some very, very exciting 2020 startups. And this conversation is about how investments work and where you should start if you have an idea, where you should go if your idea is in motion, what you should do next, when you do need funding, when you don't. And I tell you one thing, we're 12 months into our own startup journey at Bub and we're generating multiple six-figure ARR. We think we kind of know our shit by now, but after an hour's conversation with Jonathan, I realized how much I didn't know. Uh, So wherever you are on your startup journey, you haven't even started the startup journey or you're just curious to find out more about how things work in the land of VCs and accelerators and incubators and just startups in general, uh, then this is the episode for you. So without further ado, welcoming Jonathan Hua of Scrum Ventures. Mr. Jonathan Hua, how are you? Hey, Ben. Good morning from uh, the Bay Area. I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm good. I mean, I wish I was in the Bay Area because you've probably got blue skies and we've got rain in England and it's approaching evening, but I'm good. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Uh, the weather here has been great. Uh, we are very fortunate kind of being in spring, transitioning over into summer. Uh, the Bay Area has, uh, has always kind of been kind in the weather department. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for coming. And I'm going to have to slightly expose you, but it's because I'm grateful. So Jonathan has had a horrible cold and has managed to get to this uh, interview today, even though he's got a slight gruff throat. But So, uh, you know, just laying that air of sympathy out there for the listeners, Jonathan. <laughs> I appreciate it, Ben. Uh, but no excuses. No excuses. That's it. Perseverance. So Jonathan, welcome to the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club. You are slightly different in terms of a guest today. Uh, we're going to touch on your previous entrepreneurial experience, but you're here today because you've been busy investing in 2020 entrepreneurs. Uh, but still, welcome to the club. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, so, Jonathan, let's jump into uh, you as an investor. So, you're from Scrum Ventures, uh, active in the Bay Area in San Francisco. As I mentioned, quite busy last year investing in some uh, 2020 tech startups, trying to get a few of them on the podcast still, as you know. Uh, but yeah, talk us through... Uh, Jonathan and Scrum Ventures and uh, your relation to tech startups in 2020 and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. So Scrum Ventures, we are a a venture fund. We started in 2013. We're currently investing out of our third fund. Fund three is $50 million, but we're actually in the process of raising a fourth fund that's going to be anywhere between 75 to $100 million. And we are early stage investors, so primarily seed and series A. And we are generalists. So we're pretty industry agnostic investors. We've done everything from digital weight loss startups to uh, cashierless checkout stores to farm to table grocery delivery, uh, remote VR surgical training, uh, and everything you can kind of imagine in between. So far, we've made about 84 investments. Uh, We have 14 exits in our portfolio and a couple of companies mulling over SPACs and IPOs in the next year or two as well. So a lot of exciting things happening here at Scrum. The kind of interesting strategic angle for companies working with us uh, is the Japanese market. So all of our LPs are major Japanese corporations. Uh, Our founder, Tak, uh, is a famous entrepreneur in Japan. Uh, There's a lot of great operational expertise on our team, some serial entrepreneurs, uh, some executives from top-level companies, 
who are who are you know working at Scrum as investors, uh, and together uh, we provide a lot of value, helping our portfolio companies get into the Japanese market and beyond into the APAC region. So that's Scrum Ventures in a nutshell. As an investor, you know my background specifically is, is I'm more, more well I'm more well known for my for my work in the agriculture and food tech space. Uh, but as a generalist, I look at everything from the future of food uh, to supply chain logistics to e-commerce uh, to healthcare, education, uh, and several other uh, areas. I've also looked in the deep tech frontier tech at times as well. Uh, space tech is currently something that I'm I'm curious about as well. So lots of uh, lots of really interesting areas to explore. Absolutely, and I intend to explore those with you, Jonathan. Um, before we get into the wider picture here. It'd be great to learn a bit about the brands that you actually invested in last year. So uh, we got Mm-hmm, which took me about two months uh, to learn how to pronounce. Uh, I can see Grub Market, uh, Prodigy Software, Osso, and so on. So tell us a little about the brands that popped up in 2020 that you're uh, involved with. Yeah, so Grub Market was an existing investment uh, that Scrum made at the seed and Series A stage uh, that I led our Series D investment in uh, since they are a, grow- a fast-growing company. So, you know, I wouldn't consider them a, a new startup by, by any, any, you know, definition of the term. Uh, they've actually made probably averaging 10 to 12 acquisitions a year now. That's kind of how, how big they've grown. Uh, but the other companies on that list, Prodigy, um, also VR, mm-hmm, and there's one uh, called Cake. Um, that uh, that will be uh, announced soon uh, with Scrum. You know, are, these are the three or four that uh, I made investments in last year. And so Prodigy, I invested in their Series A. Prodigy is, is an end-to-end uh, kind of car dealership um, buying experience. So enterprise SaaS platform that sells to rooftop dealerships uh, that does everything from lead generation uh, for customers for car dealerships all the way through to being able to do uh, car tours virtually, to be able to negotiate car deals online, to be able to do everything from the financing and end transactions. Uh, you can get loans uh, through Prodigy. You can also, um, you know, get get vouchers for gas. You can um, get car insurance through this platform as well. It's truly an end-to-end experience. They're actually one of the companies that uh, this year just got acquired. Um, so they got acquired by a company named Upstart. They are a public company um, uh, that does financial transactions. We made our first investment in the company in 2018 or 2019 or so. And we were hoping to see them continue on their path to a Series B and beyond. Uh, but Upstart you know, just jumped in and, um, and, and snatched them up at the beginning of 2021. So that was really exciting for us. Mm-hmm is a you know remote presentation tool. So started by the former CEO and co-founder of Evernote, uh, Mr. Phil Libin. Mm-hmm is is a new way to present yourself in video conferencing tools. It's video conferencing tool agnostic. Uh, there's a lot of fun backgrounds you can use to customize your experience on video chat. But also, if you are creating presentations, it's a much more interactive way to present things over video chat. So the biggest problem you see with presentations on video calls is it's very stale, very static. There aren't any supportive tools for this. You you share your screen and you talk through it one by one. But with mm-hmm, kind of plugged into your Zoom, you get laser pointers. You get uh, the ability to present over your shoulder so it looks like you're in the same presentation room. You can do a co-pilot presentation with another person on video chat where it looks like you guys are in the same room sitting side by side doing the same presentation both people in the presentation can control the same document. Uh, there are a lot of really cool uh, features that allow you to, to make your backgrounds more dynamic, just to make things more fun and more engaging and more, um, more dynamic. And, and you know, it's now available for Windows. It used to be iOS only uh, and Mac OS only. Uh, now, now they've launched Windows. And so you know, this is a really exciting product. Uh, Sequoia came in and led this round and, and, you know, Phil, Phil is a, is a creative genius and a marketing genius. So we're really excited to see where this product goes. The, the other one that I wanted to mention really quickly was, uh, also VR, uh, the founder, Justin Barad, uh, is someone that I've known for a little while now. Uh, and he's got the most incredible story. I think he'd be an awesome person to actually have on the podcast one day, but he was a game designer. Uh, decided to make a pivot into medical school a couple years in, uh, graduated number one in his class at UCLA Med, then 
uh, went to Harvard and Stanford to do additional training and then became an orthopedic surgeon and then pivoted into entrepreneurship when he found uh, a key problem to solve, which was the fact that surgeons weren't getting trained properly or there, were, there weren't many resources for surgeons to be able to train on, on a remote basis or on a more consistent basis. So right now, you know, most orthopedic surgeons, when they do their training, they either read PDF manu manuals to, to kind of get the get the, the gist or the summary of how to do a, a procedure. And then they have to rely on cadavers uh, or something similar. And these cadavers can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so surgeons, oftentimes before they walk into their very first training session, maybe have, have done this procedure in full one time, maybe two times at most. That is very concerning, I would say, Jonathan. Extremely concerning. So, you know, I, I don't want to be on the uh, on the operating table with the, with the new surgeon who's only done this once or twice and doesn't have the muscle memory uh, done, doesn't have the confidence in themselves to be able to do this correctly, uh, you know, time after time again. And so what Justin built was also VR, which is a remote surgical uh, platform for surgical training. Uh, and he uses the, uh, the Oculus Quest 2. He's built a software platform and a content platform uh, into the, the Oculus Quest 2. And when a surgeon-to-be or a surgeon puts on this, this VR headset, what you see is a very, very lifelike and realistic operating room. And you know, there are many different types of surgical modules. And now they, they don't just do orthopedics anymore. They, they, they do several other like endoscopies, um, uh, cardiovascular surgeries. Uh, there are many different sectors and types of surgery that they are expanding into these days. Um, but the idea here is you're ported into a very lifelike operating room. And also VR takes you step by step through something like a, uh, a knee replacement surgery, for example. They, they show you the knee. They show you what, it, what the uh, knee replacement is going to look like. They show you all the tools on the table. You have a, a virtual team uh, of, of nurses and, and, and PAs and other doctors on the sides to kind of simulate the experience. And you go through the steps. So it tells you, you know, pick up the instrument, you know, um, put it into the knee at this angle. Uh, you know, drill in for this many seconds and the entire time it's giving you feedback on how well you're doing. Uh, if you're doing it at the right angle, if you're putting enough power or force into it, uh, if you're doing the right steps and it, you know, constantly aggregates this data and actually gives you a score at the very end as well. So, you know, how you're doing, you know, what you did wrong and you know what to improve on. And you can do this over and over and over again. And so, you know, also VR did several studies with like Johnson and Johnson and, and several, you know, uh, universities uh, to see how effective this was. And the results were just mind blowing, humongous jumps uh, in success rates, especially during the pandemic. This was very, very relevant as most hospitals were overwhelmed with COVID cases uh, and didn't have the space, time, energy or budget to be able to, to do too much uh, emphasis for for training the next generation of surgeons. So this was kind of a lifesaver for for a, a lot of folks here. Absolutely, and it's a funny one. I mean, me as a person who has no contact with the healthcare industry, I mean, touch words. I, I, I occasionally do when I you know injure myself, but um, you know I don't really have anyone close to me that works within healthcare. Uh, I've never obviously worked in healthcare myself, and I certainly don't know about the technology that exists there apart from the obvious. And you kind of always look at medicine and healthcare as being scalpels and, you know, slicing someone open and putting them back together. That's how we've always perceived healthcare. And um, it's actually fascinating to see the technology that exists. And I didn't even know that there's such a lack of technology in certain areas such as training. But I guess it's obvious because how else are you going to learn to cut open a human torso if it's not a human torso, it's a simulation of. Uh, so that sounds like a, uh, an incredibly uh, interesting and exciting episode to be. So yes, definitely. You've sold you've sold him to me. Get him on the podcast, sort of thing. It's done. So thanks for uh, giving us an introduction to Scrum Ventures, some of the brands that you invested in last year. The 2020 Entrepreneurs Podcast. I mean, we've had an amazing bunch of guests on this podcast. Uh, so far, we've covered six or seven countries. Uh, we've still got about the same to go, and we're going to keep on going around the world. I mean, you, you, you've, you've listened to the episodes. You kind of know where we're at. And we've had this really good range of guests from 
bedroom bootstrappers, as I call them. I hope they don't mind me saying that. But you know, we have this concept. They're usually technical founders. They've built this themselves and they're out there selling it. And then we go right up to the other end, such as the previous guest, Joe and the guys at Reprise. They're on 20 million Series A within 12 months, right? Now, I am with Bub. We're sort of in the middle, not in terms of a monetary amount, but we kind of are semi-experienced with funding and growth, but um, certainly still very green. Um, uh, But winding back, even though I'd always worked for high-growth startups, when we actually push the button on taking this idea in our heads to a product build or to, you know, just everything grassroots up, registering companies and understanding what to do next, you know, there's a huge... Um, learning curve there so I think this would be a really good place to start let's say um, you and I uh, we're spitballing ideas right now and we have this idea that we are focused on or we've already we're we're already there we've registered a company um, we've already started to put this business together and you know we understand where we want to go with it when it comes to investment and funding it's it's the biggest rabbit hole I've ever encountered. Trying to get agnostic advice is is like near, near enough impossible. So where should a really early stage startup like that look first? Talk us through that initial journey that they should be taking and, and, and the things that they need to learn. Well, okay. So we're assuming here that, you know, you've got, you've got a couple of co-founders with an idea, uh, how much have they built this idea? Is this kind of a pre-seed company? Is this what you're thinking? Let's say this is a pre-seed, pre-revenue, MVP stage. So you, let's say we've got some founders that have a product. I appreciate I just gave you the most vague scenario there, Jonathan. So let me tidy this up a bit. Okay, so we're pre-seed, pre-revenue, but there is a product there. There's an MVP um, and we've got, let's say, technical founders that are able to build product. Okay. So that would take this company kind of, you know, out, out of relevance for a lot of traditional institutional VCs uh, and a lot of uh, CVCs as well. So you'd be looking at, you know, early stage micro funds uh, or early stage institutional VCs that specifically focus on pre-seed companies. So that'd be folks like Village Global, your unshackled uh, ventures, or or my my buddy uh, was actually a former colleague at Scrum. Uh, he's, he just launched his new pre-seed fund called Untapped uh, Capital. Uh, brilliant guy, uh, used to run the Techstars Disney Accelerator, uh, has worked as a VC here at Scrum, uh, and is now la- has now launched his own pre-seed fund. And so folks like that, with accelerator experience, with venture experience at the earliest stages, now launching their new funds, there are a couple of, of very high quality pre-seed micro VCs uh, kind of out there now that you can raise money from that are specifically looking for folks who are underfunded or underserved or underrepresented in in some shape or form. And these folks, uh, you know, don't care if you don't have funding from others, if you haven't been through an accelerator or an incubator program before, if you're a pre-revenue MVP product, uh, you know, very early this is who they're looking for. So there are folks like that. Uh, then, of course, you have angel groups uh, who, who you know, will put together angel syndicates uh, from various high net worth individuals uh, or accredited investors who can come together to, to create a pool of capital to give you as an investment. Uh, or you go through incubators and accelerators, uh, you know, give up part of your company in exchange uh, for help support uh, assistance, as well as a little bit of funding as well. So those are kind of typical avenues. You can also crowdfund, you can also bootstrap. But the first question you really have to ask at that stage is, should you even raise money from VCs? I think it's a very common misconception that you have to, ap- you absolutely have to raise money from VCs. And so the key questions you got to ask yourself first here is, do you actually need funding to grow the company? Can you reach your next milestones without venture money? And if you can, keep going that way. Keep bootstrapping until you absolutely think that, you know, you won't survive the next couple years, year or two without venture funding. The next thing you need to ask is, how much have you de-risked your own startup? You know, investors, 
want to see an opportunity that's as little risk to them as possible with the highest potential. And that's sounds like a dumb thing, you know, to require a dumb thing to be looking at, um, to, to, you know, require an early stage company to have de-risk as much as possible. But that's not what that necessarily means is it has to be a risk-free investment. I just need to see evidence that, you know, for example, the strength of your co-founding team, that's a way to de-risk a company. Uh, the MVP feedback on the MVP could be a good way to de-risk your company if it's very, very positive. If you've done alpha tests or beta tests and you've gotten great feedback, uh, then that would be great. If you've validated your market in any sort of way and you have the stats to show it, that's a way to de-risk uh, your investment as well. And so taking these steps to, to kind of check off key things about you know, what the biggest risks are in your company and how you've solved them. You'll have to be able to gauge how much you've done this before you walk up to an investor uh, because the investor will only care about how much you've de-risked your company. Um, the other thing is, you know, are you willing to cede ownership and control of part of your company at this early stage right now? Is the trade-off for a, a financial or strategic partner worth it for you? And are you, you know, the, the thing I like to tell entrepreneurs here is you treat equity like a part of your body. Once you cut it off, you don't get it back. You can grow part of it back. You, it, you know, you can grow a little bit of it back, but it's never the same. And you never get the entire, um, you know, cut off part back the way it was. And you're going to have to live with that for the life, essentially the life of your company. So be prepared to do that. And then if you've decided that, you know, these questions are, you've, you've answered these questions, you've decided that, you know, investment might be something you're very interested in. When you find an investor, that's a whole nother process where you have to align your ambitions and expectations with VC. So that'd be like investor founder fit or investor company fit. You know, there's overwhelming negative odds for any entrepreneur in this, you know, building any solution, uh, especially, uh, you know, with the, with the, uh, the odds being somewhere around 90 to 90, I think 92% of startups fail. And so if you want to succeed, you have to find investors who truly align with what your, your vision, your goal is, and will support you accordingly. And so you don't want to take money just from anyone, just because you really want money or really need money. Don't just take money from anyone that is offering it to you. You have to really vet your investors just as much as investors vet your company before making an investment as well. And, and so these are kind of the key things you have to ask yourself before you know, potentially going down that fundraising path. Because the other thing to remember is once you go down the fundraising path, the CEO is expected to spend almost 100% of his or her time fundraising. It's a full-time job, a full-time process. If we're getting the sense as investors that you're only kind of fundraising, um, but not really taking it seriously by not taking it full-time, you've just shot most of your odds of actually getting a, fund a fundraising round together. Um, and so you have to be prepared to do that as well. So, you know, keep those, keep that framework in mind, keep those questions in mind, you know, as you're thinking about fundraising, there are sources available. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, pre-seed funds, angel groups, crowdsource, uh, crowdfunding, uh, angel um, incubators, accelerators. There are many avenues that you can get funding from, but you need to, you need to be able to answer those questions first. Do you actually need the funding? So, Jonathan, that, that was an amazing walkthrough of, of every option at an early stage. And we had a couple of episodes uh, on the incubator specials. And um, I think people are more familiar now with the routes where you can go to. I mean, business angels have uh, certainly been known since Shark Tank came out and Dragon's Den here in the UK. But you're touching on something there that is very, very interesting. And it's the concept of you don't have to get investment. Sometimes you do. If you were trying to build an app that called you a cab, you're going to need investment to build an app like this, right? Um, but once you get to a point where you, where you have that MVP there, you've got a product that's working, you're post-revenue, uh, I guess what you're kind of alluding to is the fact that you have choice at that point. If you've got revenue coming in and you own all of the parts of your body, you, you have more of a choice as to 
whether or not you take an investment, but I guess primarily who isn't going to invest in you. So, And this is the next complex part of growth. So we've covered the early stage part. Now coming on to the bit where we're doing okay. I think this is almost where we're at in terms of our business. We're, the revenue is coming in. We've got uh, a product that's, who's, uh, we, and the concept is being proven daily. So first question is, what kind of things do I need to ask myself? What, what kind of things does this um, you know, post-revenue startup uh, CEO need to ask themselves before they decide on raising money, uh, as in like a, a a serious funding round. So here, you know, I would say you need to understand your milestones for 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 your next round. So if you're raising a seed round, you need to understand what milestones you need or what KPIs you need to get to Series A. So if you're fundraising at the seed stage, look ahead to Series A. How long will it take you to get there? You know, if you raise 2 million, will that get you 13 to 15 months of runway? If you raise 3 million, will that get you to 18 months of runway? And you need to map out, you know, how many new employees do you need to hire? Do you need to hire anyone with kind of executive capabilities uh, on the sales side or the marketing side to help, you know, push the growth of your company forward into the next stage? Uh, are you going to be focusing a lot of your seed funding uh, on product development and R&D? Uh, are you going to be spending this uh, in other facets or avenues? Uh, maybe you're a, a hardware a harder company and you have a lot of upfront CapEx costs that you need to be aware of, uh, you take care of uh, in order to, to launch your product. Maybe this is where your funding is going. But you need to understand, you need to understand the, the 18 plus month timeline of where you want to be next and you have to work backwards from there. And And so... You know, the other important thing for a company at this stage to ask themselves if, if they're ready for funding is, you know, have they achieved any evidence of product market fit? And the, the concept of product market fit is, you know, you're in a good market with the product that can satisfy the market, right? So bad product market fit, number one reason why startups fail. And if you haven't achieved this yet, VCs, or if you haven't tried, achieving this, if there isn't any evidence that you're moving towards product market fit, VCs won't touch you. Give us an example, Jonathan. Give us a typical example of a successful product market fit that you've seen in recent years. You know, the idea of product market fit is to find a large market opportunity that has a critical problem affecting a lot of people. Uh, and that your problem or I mean, your solution and your business model can fully solve this in a profitable and viable way. So also VR saw a huge problem in the market. Uh, there are a couple of competitors, but very few and none that operate in the same exact area that they do. They did a ton of studies to validate their product with Johnson & Johnson, with research institutions, with, with top-notch universities. And this research validated the effectiveness of their product compared to folks who did not use their product. Uh, then you know, they, they figured out that there was viability in the product and, and there's long-term feasibility in the market and that there was a desire from medical device companies uh, to be able to sell this to customers. And there was, there was a, a desire among medical school students and up-and-coming surgeons and hospital systems to use this to train. Uh, so all of those things, all those bubbles kind of coming together is, is what made OsoVR uh, kind of achieve product market fit uh, in their sector. So that's how I would, that's how I would, um, <clears throat> define it. The other ways to prove product market fit to VCs would be stuff like consistent MRR growth or ARR growth. And this is something that also VR had as well. Their growth at the series a was just incredible. Uh, they were doing several million dollars in, in ARR, um, already. Uh, and so, you know, already ahead of the pack, uh, compared to many of their series a peers, um, you know, do you have strong engagement metrics that suggest that people keep coming back to your platform over and over and over again, whether that's a product or a service, people will keep coming back, keep using it over and over again and, and don't churn. Um, low churn indicates happy customers. That's, you know, uh, an indication. Do you have, you know, strong LTV CAC ratios that suggest that people are sticking around long-term and not wanting to leave? Um, that suggests strong repeat users, uh, strong expansion revenue opportunities for your company. Now, those are all ways to prove product market fit. Uh, you can also, if you don't have those numbers at, on hand either, you know, good reviews, good feedback from users. That's another way to kind of move towards product market fit. Or you can do things like NPS scores or customer references. And these are all things that 
combine together, tell a story of why people like your product, want your product or and need your product. Uh, and that all moves you on the, on the path towards product market fit. Yeah, and there's products out there. Um, I'm sure you will know a few that um, will embed within your platform to measure customer sentiment, like NPS scores. And you know, this is all designed uh, to make you more attractive to investors, and, and you know, to really showcase the proven concept. Um, so you can see how I said this is a rabbit hole at the start of the conversation to all those listeners out there. So luckily we have Jonathan here guiding us through this hole of rabbits. Um, okay, so something you've touched on there. It's something that I hear, you know, day in, day out from talking to tech founders, and it's the CEO side hustle, right? Everyone knows that the CEO has a side hustle. Um, uh, by the way, when there's no investors in the room, it's called the side hustle. When you're in the room, they must call it the full-time hustle, clearly. But, um, and, you know, it, it never really occurred to me. It's kind of obvious now, but it's because of that timeline. It's getting the seed has to get to A. The A has to get to B and so on. So talk us through that next days. So I'm 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 seeded. Let's say we've got a, a seven-figure seed. Um, this is expected to last me generally around eighteen months, right? Talk about the time pressures that you have it within that next five years of growth, and what a VC parting with cash, be it uh, dollars. Uh, pounds or yen what they're expecting to see on that growth over the next five years what i'm trying to do here is illustrate what founders get themselves into when they're taking vc money about to go on this route so talk us through that yeah so you know every company is different every vc's requirements are different um but typically when you're looking at companies that go from c to series a you know you're you're expecting well first of all when you raise a series A, your valuation and the amount of money that you're going to be raising in that round is easily going to be at, you know, we're expecting at least double, right? So if you raise like a 5 million seed round at a 20 million, 30, like 20 million valuation, you know, we're expecting you at the series A to go for, you know, at least, you know, eight to 10 million at a 40 million valuation, um, if not more than that. <clears throat> and in order to justify that valuation, you have to see very strong growth in customers uh, and in revenue. And so, you know, we don't really expect a certain amount of growth in revenue, but we want it to be consistently increasing. And we want to see that, you know, you're spending a lot of your time and efforts uh, on your distribution strategy and your go-to-market. By the time you hit your Series A, you should easily be at least a million in, 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 in annual recurring revenue, if not more at least. Uh, you should have you know, a sizable chunk of brand name customers who are working with you, ideally on multi-year contracts. If not, you know, at least these customers have been around for a little bit of time now to indicate kind of stickiness of your platform. And we want to see that you've made efforts to build out your team to scale for growth. So if you, if you have a, a CEO and a CTO at the seed stage, you hire some more developers, but before you hit that series A stage, you know, you're thinking about, you know, maybe I need to hire a chief marketing officer. Maybe I need to hire someone for, 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 for growth purposes. Maybe I need to hire, you know, some folks uh, that are high caliber in order to help me kind of grow and scale this company into the kind of mid, mid to late stages uh, of this company, you know, as I walk into my series A fundraise. And, and so, you know, you have these kinds of metrics that you have to go towards. Typically, Startups, after they accept money from VCs, they have to put together a board. And this board is what keeps founders accountable. Uh, and so typically the requirements for being on a board is you have to be a majority shareholder. Uh, so you typically lead investor or follow on investor who puts a significant chunk of money. So we typically don't fall into that bucket. We typically are follow on investors who write checks that kind of fall under the threshold of being a board observer or board member. Uh, but most fundraising rounds will include, you know, the, you know, a couple of new VCs ad, as board members joining the company. And so these board members will meet with the entrepreneurs on a regular basis. Sometimes it's weekly, sometimes it's monthly. It's, it's mostly going to be monthly or, or, or something along those, not that cadence. And, you know, we're all always expecting updates. You know, what have you done over the past month to, to signal growth? Uh, where are you lacking? Where do you need help? How can we as VCs 
open up our network and our expertise to you to help you grow. Uh, we are expecting that, you know, within the next, I don't know, from the seed, from the seed round, we expect you to start thinking about your series A raise about maybe eight to 12 months in after your seed round. Uh, so you need enough runway for 18 months, but you need to start raising that series A about eight, about eight to 12 months after your seed round. Uh, so we're just constantly trying to get you to that stage where you will become an attractive target for other investors at that stage. So this is the side hustle. This is why you want that, what, no full-time hustle, full-time hustle, Jonathan. This is why you need that CEO out there continually raising money so that you they are ready to get to that next stage. I, can I ask a really, like, pretty silly-sounding question, but it seems I've seen this as obvious at times. Why is it full time? Why don't we wait until we're nearly at, we're nearly ready for the next round and then go out and get the money? Is it just literally the manual marching down pavements, knocking on doors type thing that is so time consuming? That's very time. It's time consuming figuring out, first of all, what your, what your goals and metrics are for the next round. And then you have to figure out what types of investors you want for this round. And then the con and then reaching out to them and having conversations with them. I mean, a given entrepreneur with any investor they talk to can have anywhere between one intro call that doesn't move forward to five, six, seven calls with the venture fund uh, through a due diligence process. And that's very time consuming. And you know, most most venture funds, they take at least several weeks to a month at a minimum to do due diligence on a company. Some firms take longer. And so, you know, if you're working with these investors over a several month time span um, to, you know, constantly be answering questions, constantly be getting on phone calls, uh, you know, presenting customer references to these investors, telling them about the innermost details and secrets of your company, um, being essentially being audited and interrogated uh, in, in some shape or form uh, by these investors, it's going to take a full-time effort to be able to, to get through this in one piece. And, and so, you know, the other thing is if we see a founder who isn't doing this full-time, you know, it indicates to us as investors that either you're not taking us seriously, you're not, or you're not taking this fundraise seriously. And typically you have timelines that you have to meet when you're fundraising. You, you know, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't spend a whole year fundraising. Um, you could do. You could be a part-time fundraiser as a CEO and spend a whole year fundraising, but you'll you'll find it gets harder and harder and harder to get anyone to commit to your round, especially knowing that your round's going to be open for the next year. And no one's going to be in a rush to to invest in you, and that's your job as an entrepreneur. Is you want to create demand. Uh, you want to create demand for your round. And in order to do that, you need to be able to wrap up a round as quickly as you possibly can. Also for your sanity, if you're going to do this full time, you want to wrap this up as quickly as possible so you can get go back heads down to run your company. But you know, typically you get a lead investor, that process can take a couple of months to do. But once you get there, filling out the rest of the round you know, typically takes within 30 to 45 days or so. Uh, and you should be able to close out the rest of your round. And, and so, you know, you have to just be mentally prepared that for at least a three to about a three to four month span, you're going to be spending most of your time fundraising and trying to close this out as soon as possible. Uh, and that's just the reality of it. And so if you decide to do this part-time, you're going to drag your round out. Investors are going to drop off and you'll never be able to close this round. Uh, and people will think you're not taking this seriously. And that just makes your job a lot harder down the road. Yeah, you know what this is? It's sales. This is why you can't do sales in the part-time. And you you know, if founders often find this because they're trying to sell whilst they're trying to build, whilst they're trying to manage, whilst they're trying to do uh, tax returns and so on. So th thanks for taking us through that, Jonathan. You know, I, we said, I wanted this episode to be about, in, you know, an education to, well, just informative to anyone on any type of startup journey be it still an idea in their head or be it someone like me who's slightly further along or someone that's already gone through that seed just needs to hear, you know, uh, a, a different perspective or just uh, where to go next. You know, you, this type of information is invaluable. I guess for those out there that don't have experience of this type of growth, this type of route, right? What is the big why? Why do people go through this arduous task 
of round after round after round of full-time funding, what's the end goal versus the organic way to grow a business? Well, the end goal is to exit, right? And that's always the end goal of a company, either take the company public via SPAC or IPO or, or to get acquired um, and build something that's lasting, build something that's that a lot of people use and love and to, and, and to build it into a company that, you know, has its own legs and stands on its own. And that's the goal. But, you know, in order to get there within a reasonable time frame. So if you try to do that from the start of a company with no outside funding and you want to generate revenue all on your own, you want to get customers on your own, you want to be able to hire the best talent, you want to be able to hire huge teams of developers to develop new features and, and, and services on your platform. You, you want you have a ton of large contracts that you have to fulfill and you try to do that with no outside funding that's challenging. You're relying on yourself. You're relying on um, the revenue that you bring in, um, which normally isn't going to be enough to, to have this hyper growth. It's been done before, but it's not very common. And so you always get these cash injections from investors. And also investors bring in other things, right? You know, investors bring in, you know, operational expertise. Investors bring in prior, uh, bring in strong networks of portfolio companies uh, or other investors that they know. Uh, a lot of experience with companies getting acquired or, or going public uh, or helping you find your next key star hire. You know, investors have a lot of resources that help you accelerate the timeline to getting to an exit. And that's why you fundraise is if you don't, if you, if you, if you go the typical route of getting venture funding and you meet all of your KPIs and criteria on a round to round basis, I mean, typically we're expecting companies to exit within 10 years, usually faster. Uh, in the case of Prodigy, it was like three to four years. Um, you know, but then we also have companies like Noom that are doing very, very well. There are our best company in our portfolio, highest valued company in our portfolio to date. Uh, that's, you know, at least six, seven, eight years in now. And, um, you know, still rolling along very strong. Uh, it just raised a pre IPO round thinking about their options, but you know, it's, they've been able to generate significant amounts of revenue, um, supplementing the huge fundraisers that they've done in order to continue their, their path of growth for, you know, nearly a decade now. And so, you know, in order to meet these timelines, Oftentimes you will have to go through the fundraising route. If you don't do that, you know, there's no telling how long it'll take you to get your company on the growth path to a viable scale that will allow you to get your company acquired uh, or go public. So that's typically why you do this. That's an excellent answer, Jonathan. And you know what it is? It's the full circle there. Back to what you said at the start, the choice. Do you need funding now? Do you need funding then? Do you need funding in five years, 10 years? Because I think a lot of people are fixated now on, I have an idea, must raise money without asking themselves, uh, themselves enough questions as to what they want. There is nothing wrong with growing an organic business and it paying you well and you having this business that grows for 20, 30 years. In fact, it's the way that businesses usually did things, right? The mum and pop shop and it was handed down through the generations. That is organic business at its finest and it, it's something that's beautiful and uh, I, I hope you know never dies out but it, with more and more people fixated on you know the fast growth quick money uh, I think sometimes they lose sight of why they're doing it you know and hey at the end of the day fast growth and exits of multiple millions of dollars is always going to be very attractive and but you know it, it's good to have um, you know, I guess an overview as to both sides and, and really understanding which route uh, is right for you. So thanks for taking us through that. Um, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So Perspective and hindsight. Hindsight's 2020. Right. So, yeah, you understand what's happening on both sides and you can better prepare yourself. Yes, absolutely. So, Jonathan, coming into the to the later part of the hour, um, I'd like to understand a bit more of you. you you've got an interesting background, you know, you uh, as I touched on at the start some entrepreneurial experience and, and now you're investing in some of these amazing companies. So just wind back a bit. What, how have you got to, to this point? Where did it all begin for Jonathan? Everything began uh, in college for me. So I, I went to Rice University in Houston, Texas. Uh, that was from 2010 to 2014. 
And I was ex first exposed to entrepreneurship when I was there. So I grew up in many different countries. I grew up you know, in the US, I moved to Japan, I moved to Taiwan. Uh, the entire time, I thought my career path was I was gonna go to medical school, become a doctor, and that was the end of it. My very first year in college, I was sitting in a coffee shop on campus and overheard a group of upperclassmen talking about starting a business. And I had no idea what entrepreneurship was at this time. I had no idea how to build a business, but I was intrigued because the idea that they were talking about was an internship finding website for underclassmen who didn't know where to start. And I was intrigued because as I was looking at Rice's career management solutions and services and options at the time, they weren't very robust. And so this was a problem that affected me directly. Uh, it was an idea that I was very intrigued with. And they put out a call for folks who were interested in helping them on this journey. And I found a guy named Akash Morrison, who was one of the co-founders and ended up being one of my best friends. And the guy I actually credit with, with getting me interested in entrepreneurship, he brought me into this company you know, when we started just grinding, you know, building marketing strategies, preparing for a beta test, uh, building a product, just going through that whole process. And we, we also went through the process of fundraising a little bit too from business plan competitions and such. Um, together ended up raising nearly $100,000 for, for, this, for this venture before it ended up not working out because most of the co-founders were upperclassmen. They all ended up getting jobs. Uh, job offers from from cushy places and ended up following uh, those paths instead. And so Akash and I stayed behind, tried to keep the company afloat. It didn't work out. But by that time, we were kind of hooked on the idea of entrepreneurship and the idea of solving problems uh, and building companies around those problems uh, to help others. And so I dropped out of pre-med. I you know decided I wanted to, I, I was going to follow my instincts and my gut I was going to go become a history major because that's what I loved, but I was also going to be an entrepreneur at the same time. So at Rice, I started a second company, you know, long story short, didn't end up working out again, uh, but it was, it was a mobile virtual fitting room app. It was maybe a decade ahead of its time. The technology and computer vision wasn't advanced enough at the college level for any college level engineers to understand. And I didn't realize this, but it was a really cool idea. And I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself now because I'm seeing entrepreneurs pitch me the same idea with actual uh, an actual app built out already with the same exact functionalities that I had envisioned uh, all those years back that I was not able to execute on. Uh, and I'm very happy that it's being done now. I have a question there. How many VCs or people working in, yeah, like yourself, an investor within uh, a Scrum Ventures, how many times have you seen guys get so fed up of investing in other ideas that they've gone, sod this, I'm off, I'm, I'm going to go and start some of my own? So VCs typically end up on one, one of a few paths. Um, you know, the, the common one is to try to rise the ranks, you know, in the VC fund, become a partner. But that's difficult. It's challenging. And a lot of VCs come in with operational expertise from prior engagements and prior jobs. And so a lot of times, more often than not, you see VCs who work in VC for a couple of years then join a portfolio company uh, as an op in an operation strategy or growth role. Or they go find another VC friend or find other entrepreneur friends or find a portfolio company founder that exited their company and is building their next thing. And you join up, team up and build something new together. And it's a very, very common um, pathway for VCs. So yes, you see this very often. Interesting. Right. Sorry. But back to your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. So, you know, two-time failed entrepreneur in college uh, was hooked on the idea of, of, of startups and entrepreneurship. And, you know, having been on one side of the table pitching two VCs, I was very intrigued uh, by the prospect of, of being able to, to utilize my background, my expertise, my network, and my learnings as a failed entrepreneur to help others, other entrepreneurs. So I decided to pursue my MBA right after that. I went to Cornell Cornell University uh, in Ithaca, New York, uh, from 2015 to 2017 to pursue my MBA for the sole purpose of getting as deep into entrepreneurship and VC as I possibly could. So 
took all the courses in, in, the, in the area, went to all the events in New York City that, that Cornell and others offered and started working my way in. So got my first job in VC um, at a place called CoVenture. They, they were at the time kind of an early stage pre-seed fund investing in consumer startups. But the way I got that job was through pure luck and a lot of patience. So I, I decided I wanted to be in VC. Uh, and the way you do that is you got to hustle your way in. So I got a list of, of 30 VCs that had ties to Cornell from a contact on campus and cold called and cold emailed every single one of them. And of the 30, it took me a long time to get through that list, but of the 30, I got three responses. Two told me, you know, it was great to meet me. <clears throat> I had a lot of guts trying to reach out like this and they respected that, but they weren't hiring. One guy said, we weren't hiring either, but you know, since you've gotten this far already, if I connect you with a partner and they're impressed enough to want to take you under the wing and you agree to do this for free and you agree to give up your weekends to come to New York and, and, and help us out, um, you know, despite your course load, we will, we may, might give you a chance. So I took it, you know, one guy, one partner went through the interview process Um got lucky enough that the partner that, that the partner liked me enough to give me a chance, told me that if I was willing to come to New York City every other weekend um, and <clears throat> work with them, go to events with them, um, help them with uh, diligence memos and such and research that they that they'd let me uh, they did show me the ropes. So that's exactly what happened. And I did that for a year while I was doing my MBA program, got my got my foot in the door in BC. And at the same time, uh, while I was doing my MBA, I, op I opted to, to, to you know, be a consultant for startups as well. So there were programs within our school that allowed us to, to be a, an MBA consulting team for companies looking to fundraise or looking to, to grow. And so I worked with a company called Folio Water uh, at the time. They ended up in uh, 500 startups batch 21 after they worked with us, which was a, a big pride point for me. But you know, we were helping them with their distribution strategy, helping them with their investment strategy, help them put together a pitch deck and, and, and figure out how to pitch themselves to these accelerator programs to get accepted. And it ended up working out for them. And I was really excited about this because this company, you know, they were, they were building very cheap water filters for third world countries and to provide clean water for folks who didn't have access to clean water and, you know, helping them become successful or helping them on the journey to become successful. Uh, was something that really resonated with me. I really liked the fact that I was helping this company that was helping other people. And so the, the idea of impact and VC kind of just came together for me. And that's why I ended up in the ag and food tech space. So I'm most well known <clears throat> for my work at a place called SVG Ventures Thrive. Uh, Thrive is an, early, is a, is an accelerator program uh, here in Silicon Valley focused on, on early stage agriculture and food tech startups. And it's really an area that people don't really know much about or don't really appreciate. But if you really think about it, of all the things you do, what do you do most often? What do you always need to do? You always need to drink water and you always need to eat. And But where does that food come from? Um, where does that water come from? You know, that's all part of the, the agriculture and food ecosystem and landscape. And, and so, you know, visited a watermelon farm as, as part of my research into the agriculture space when I first jumped in um, and found that there was huge amounts of waste um, for watermelon crop that, you know, more, more than a third of all food was being wasted uh, on this watermelon farm as well. Um, there were, it was just rotting in the fields and, and that just didn't sit right with me. And so I decided I really wanted to dedicate, you know, a good chunk of my career to, to helping, you know, these underserved farmers and to bring more awareness to the agriculture and the food tech sector. And this opportunity was amazing to be able to, to work at this accelerator program end to end, manage the program, find the startups, invest in the startups, uh, support them, help them uh, get connected to other folks in the, uh, in the ag tech ecosystem here in the Valley and beyond. Uh, and to, you know, spread awareness at pitch events. So I was hosting tons and tons of pitch events at South by Southwest at Forbes. Um, I got invited, I was invited to the uh, Forbes under 30 summit in 2019 as well to be part of their very first ag tech stage um, to, to kind of, you know, show the younger generation uh, of up and coming uh, entrepreneurs uh, and, and, and innovators uh, that agriculture and food was an area and a topic that, that everyone should look at and understand as well. And so being a part of that journey, you know, I really, really 
loved it. I love everything about the industry, loved everything about the company, loved everything about the opportunity. And the, but the entire time, so, you know, very immersed in the agriculture food tech space, Scrum Ventures came knocking <clears throat> and said that they needed someone on their team who had that ag and food background because as a venture fund, Scrum was looking to expand more into food initiatives. We wanted to launch a food tech studio program. We wanted to make our first investment in the food space. Um, and so I was brought in to do that, but also to become more of a generalist investor to allow me to expand my horizons a little bit and explore a couple of other sectors and industries that I might've been interested in. So for me, the whole impact area was something I wanted to explore. You know, Scrum is interested in things like green tech, climate tech, sustainability, we were, you know, also VR is a healthcare company. Um, you know, I was able to explore enterprise SaaS. It wasn't something that I was, you know, you know, drawn to, but there are a lot of really cool things happening in that space as well. And, and just the ability to be able to be a generalist, I think is a skill set that's very valuable uh, for any VC or for any entrepreneur uh, for that matter, to be able to understand many different sectors and industries, go deep on the nuances of all of them, try to become an expert in as many as possible and to help and help support entrepreneurs in these various spaces, making, uh, making differences in, in various industries. So, you know, that's why I was drawn to Scrum. I also, the, the U S Japan connection was something that, you know, I've lived in Japan as, as a child, uh, spent almost eight years in Asia in total. And the idea of being able to support the APAC region again, uh, support Asian American founders, that was something that kind of resonated with me as well. So all of those things came together and, and, and led me to, to, to join the Scrum Ventures team uh, where I am today. So a lot of really cool things happening. Uh, and I, I got incredibly lucky uh, throughout my entire career journey, had a lot of great mentors along the way, had a lot of lucky breaks um, and, you know, just, but just hustled through everything and, and ended up here. So I'm very grateful for, for the journey. Yeah, well, it's quite some journey, Jonathan. Uh, I, yeah, thanks for taking us through it. And do you know something that stood out to me there? You, you say, um, you, you know, you had a, a couple of failed entrepreneur uh, experiences and, and now you've gone a route where you have learned more than 99.9% .9 of startup entrepreneurs would know. You know, the, the knowledge you have is invaluable. And it goes me back to um, a conversation we had on the last episode with Joe. Uh, we're talking about, you know, he's, he's talking about being fired and, co-founding a, a company that's one of the fastest growing on the west coast now and um uh we're like you know who hasn't been fired if you've not been fired you, ha you haven't fucking tried hard enough right and it's the same thing if you've not failed you clearly have not pushed it hard enough um and you know what i know i can see it in you you are going to be back on this podcast in a couple of years time talking about the early stages of your own startup because if it was in you then it's still in you now you've just gone and got yourself uh, an education that is, um, you know, pretty unique and, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting journey in a pretty short, um, period of time, I must say on that, um, aspirational entrepreneurs out there, uh, be they looking for that early stage funding from scrum or be they just looking for advice? Uh, are they okay to reach out to you on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, look up Jonathan Hua, uh, probably type in Jonathan Hua scrum ventures into LinkedIn and you should find me. Um, always open for conversations, always happy to help. And uh, yes, I have always, always uh, going to plug your podcast, of course. Jonathan has his very own podcast um, that's all around, well, what else is going to be about Jonathan? It's around funding and ventures, right? Um, so yeah, I will uh, plug that properly on the outro. But Jonathan, uh, that was, uh, honestly, you, you know, we, I've been saying on the podcast and the introduction to audience for, you know, the last couple of episodes that, um, we're going to try and get more informative. We're hearing these amazing entrepreneurial stories, um, about how they raise funding, but we don't know how, you know, they're saying, oh, we had this seed round and we've gone, we've raised another 17 million, but, um, it's very easy to just not know the nuts and bolts of it because no one is telling you and what i've experienced as an early stage entrepreneur is sometimes you're a bit afraid to ask because there's certain things you think you should know but you know what you just don't be afraid to ask i've the biggest silver liner for me of the last 12 months and this podcast is reaching out to guys like you and saying hey do you want to connect should we have a chat obviously the, the, we have a podcast in mind uh but yeah my biggest counsel to anyone out there is don't be afraid to ask. Reach out to people like Jonathan. 
there's guys out there in entrepreneurship that are so forthcoming uh, that uh, it, it's better to, 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 to ask and be told than forever guess. So uh, on that note, uh, I thank you again, Jonathan. And I look forward to doing this in another few months time on season two. Thank you so much, Ben. You are doing a great service to entrepreneurs. This is a fantastic resource. And I'm very, very, very happy uh, to be a part of this journey with you and uh, be as helpful as possible. But no, keep it going. Keep it up. Thank you, Jonathan. And yeah, can't wait to see you in the flesh in San Francisco soon, I hope. Let's do it. Post, uh, post vaccines. Let's do it. Absolutely. Have a good day. Cool. Well, I told you that was going to be insightful and what an amazing guest. Just a really, really cool guy. So massive thanks to Jonathan. Honestly, before that conversation, I did not realize how little I knew. And obviously it's my job to ask questions on the podcast, but I promise a lot of those questions were from me. I was like, Jonathan, tell me more about this because I really needed to know. So I hope you absolutely got something from that and he's a super warm guy absolutely forthcoming with information so don't hesitate to reach out to him on linkedin if you want to find him he is jonathan l hua that's h-u-a and check out jonathan's podcast he's got a really good podcast called the capitalist adventures podcast again the easiest way to find that jump on his linkedin profile it's right there if you're an early stage tech startup then of course Jonathan is your man for VC funding. Scrum Ventures, Jonathan Elfois on LinkedIn. Join us this time next week. We are meeting a lady by the name of Holly Stevens of a brand called Subleet. Cycling the title, uh, technology around subtitling, which has absolutely exploded in the last 12 months. And Holly has a really interesting story because Holly lives in different countries for about three months at a time whilst building a high growth startup. So make sure you tune in for that one. Thank you, as ever, for listening to the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club podcast. We shall see you this time next week.